welcome to Cappuccino number nine. Uh, special guest today is Dr. Fiona Penwa, who is staggered at the amount of notes, notes I write. But look, to be honest, I write them for everybody. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, it's a long introduction. So 30 years of teaching experience. Uh, she has a PhD in behavioral sciences. She's been a lecturer at Auckland University. She's been a project manager for child and family, for, again, for Auckland University. Uh, she has been a teaching associate at the University of Cambridge. She is the direct, was the director of clinical services at a charity known as Place to Be and is now the chief clinical officer at Mental Health Innovations in the UK and is also the very first doctor for the Cappuccino podcast. <laughs> so for those people who say that this is not an intellectual podcast... <laughs> Boom, yes it is. So welcome Dr. Fiona. Oh, thanks Brian. Alright, so what we normally do is we do a bit of an icebreaker round to start off with, uh, so that we get to know you better and you relax a little bit as well. Okay. So, what's your current binge on TV or Netflix or something like that? Oh, oh my gosh. Uh, oh, since I've been back in Auckland for a week or two, I've been watching MasterChef Australia with my daughter. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's the book that you're currently reading at the moment? Oh my gosh, I should have known you would ask me that. Um, Don't be afraid to say something. Because I can't remember the title. Wilbur Smith or Maybe. No, 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 no. It's, um, I'll have to pass. Okay. I'll have to look it up. All right. Good. What's the worst job you've ever had? Worst job I've ever had. Um, oh, I remember when I was a student, uh, I used to work as an assistant in a chemist, a pharmacist. Right. But, but. Right next to a whole lot of the residences in Cape Town where I was a student. And so at, I'd do the late night shift with the pharmacist. And whenever he saw young men coming in who were clearly coming in to buy condoms, he'd hide behind the... <laughs> <laughs> the right. counter and make me yeah so that was the worst job i ever had okay um dinner for five yourself obviously you're there who are the other four guests at your dinner table anybody from history yeah um nelson mandela mm -hmm. because i was fortunate enough to once talk to him on my own in the middle of a road early one morning when i was going to run a a race and he was out for his sort of 5 30 walk Nice. Um, so I talked to him for about 15 minutes. So definitely Nelson. Um, I would say, uh, the Queen of England, um, because I've not met her yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think she would be fascinating. I would say my daughter, um, because she's a really good conversationalist. Um, and my son, I take him along too. Is that four? That's your four. Okay. Good work. Good. Um, I, I think I might know the answer to this one. The most famous person you've ever met, you've just told us about Nelson Mandela. So is there anybody else? Well, yeah, I've met Nelson and I've, uh, yes, I've met Prince William, Prince Harry and the Duchess of Cambridge. I've worked with them in the UK quite a bit. Beautiful. And then our final icebreaker question is, do you collect anything? No, I actually don't because I, I move around so much and travel so much that I don't have anything collected. Beautiful. Okay. All right. So we'll get to the meat and gravy, as I call it, for the podcast now. What's the current state of children's mental health today, do you think? Oh, um, I think we're facing a lot of challenges. And um, people often say to me, um, has 
the mental health of children and young people actually got worse or we're just more aware. And I think it's definitely a combination. I think we, we are far more aware. We understand mental health a lot more. Um, in the UK, we, we're waiting for a sort of national, um, report to come out about mental health. The, the last one we saw re reporting on is 2004, but obviously there are other statistics that come through from the National Health Service. I know there, uh, there's a similar, uh, review being done here on mental health. Um, yeah, I mean, I think things like social media have made a big difference. We know the average age of children getting a cell phone, the latest stats that came out of the United States is 10 years old. Um, I think it's probably about 11 in the UK. So that exposure to, to everything that is connected to social media, I think has contributed to that. I think the, just generally that life is pretty stressful. Parents are, are, you know, there's time paucity. We don't have a lot of time. Um, and there's generally, um, I think an increase in mental health. And we know that from the World Health Organization. Yeah. So I think services are, are struggling around the world. Right. Okay. Now you mentioned social media. Mm. It's a 24 seven presence and there's lots of generations prior, um, myself included sometimes, although my wife would say I'm using, I use my phone quite a bit as well, yeah. who can't really understand the fascination with likes or friends or the such like on social media. Mm. The question I've got is, and I don't know if you've seen it, but on social media circles, there's a picture of a landing craft on D-Day and it says on June the 6th, 19, 44 brave teenagers stormed the beaches of Europe to stop Hitler. Today, words and emotions hurt. They really do, kids. Yeah. How do you put it into context? Is it, I mean, is it really that bad for the kids or do they just need to learn actually there is life outside your device or is that their actual world? Well, you know, I'm of the opinion that it, nothing, it's not going to change. This is their world mm -hmm. and it is our world as well. And in fact, in the UK, they're calling the 50 plus age group the silver swipers and one of the biggest um, demographics that are adopting social media. So I think it's across the board. It's a very addictive process, you mm -hmm. know, your phone and the likes, you know, that sort of, that those sort of rushes of pleasure you get when you get a like or, you know, it's very addictive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we, we, I remember going to a conference in London uh, not so long ago where the chap was standing up talking about social media and he was saying to all the, the to, to the, um, attendees, you know, get over yourself. We actually have to get involved and realize that this is, this is the world we're living in. But it does make it more complicated for us, I think, because it, I believe it is incredibly important to, to, for children to grow up in a balanced sort of, you know, experience of growing up. Um, there's a, the Harvard University have got a fantastic center for the developing child and they put out, you know, talking about, um, resilience and that sort of thing. And they, and they say that one of the important things about um, development of children and young people is making sure they have a balanced life and make sure they're involved in either sport, some sort of pursuit like scouts or guides or a community group, something, you know, like-minded or a religious group, church, um, you know, wh whatever your religion might be, um, and that they're involved in some way that they get enjoyment with a group. Um, obviously, you know, single pursuits are also great, but mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that if parents ensure that their children are involved away from 
their devices. I mean, I see my my grandchildren. They're um, they love their iPads and things like that. But they're also very involved in sport, so they can put them down and have an absolute fantastic time at mm -hmm. sport. And I think that's really important. Okay, so you often hear old school, and I say old school, my generation, the sort of forty to fifty group there, talking about today's kids having a lack of resiliency. Being precious about things that they're self entitled. Mm. That's another word that always gets bandied out. Um, do you think that is true in some aspect, or do you think, just like you've said with the social media, that because the world's changing, those things have actually started to creep into people's personalities? Because when I look at it from the view of a police officer, I look at some parents who are not, I'm not going to say more interested in their iPhone than they are their children but they'll be at playgrounds and their children are playing and running around and they're in a situation where almost they could get injured but dad wouldn't know or mum wouldn't know because they're too busy looking at Facebook. Mm. So is it actually, rather than just being a generational problem, is that sort of sense of um, self-entitlement and resilience, is that actually a a across the board for everybody, do you think, now? Sort of two things there, really. I'd, I'd like to talk about the mm -hmm. parents and mobile phones or cell phones. Mm -hmm. um, and also the, the I, I think, you know, I'm a parent myself and a grandparent. And it's really, I think you get different styles of parenting. We all want the best for our children. But I really think, um, you know, we've got to teach children that life is tough mm -hmm. uh, and that they, they're not going to win first prize every time. They might not even get a prize. Um, you know, and that it's, they're not entitled to, to whatever they want. Um, and I think, you know, things like delayed gratification are really difficult to teach children these days because we've got instant information at our fingertips. And, and I think that's going to become more available. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I just, it's really important that we, you know, it's, it's like that whole worrying about children's mental health. If they are struggling and there's nobody around to ask for help, that they can say that this is, yes, this is tough. What am I going to do? You know, is there somebody I can ask for help or can I work it out myself? It, things are not always easy in life. And I think if we, it's important that we teach our children that, that yes, you know, they're going to hurt if they fall and can they sort themselves out? Yes, they're going to struggle, you know, if they're locked out of their house and, but what are they going to do? So help them think about getting themselves out of a tough situation. It's not just all going to be given to them because that's fine maybe perhaps while they're at home, but when they step out into the world and they realize it's not like that, it can be really hard for them to deal with that emotionally. Yeah, when I talk to parents groups, and I say it to kids as well, my catchphrase, and feel free to use this at any stage if you want, <laughs> is you want to be the example, not an excuse. Yeah. Um, so by that, when they say, well, what do you mean by that? And I'll sort of say to them, look, you know, if something bad happens, then you want to be the example that reaches out and gets some help. Or you want to be the example that actually has enough confidence in yourself to actually say, actually, you know what, I might need to use an app or I may need to go and see somebody or something so that yeah. I get some help, not... I couldn't find any help because there didn't seem to be anybody there for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you want, you know, I mean, it's a, a, the other part of your question, and I agree with you about that. Is that I don't think anything is more important than what you model your children to your children when they're growing up. Um, oh, you know, the whole getting them out and involved in outside pursuits really important, but also is the modelling you do. You know, I mean, how much do you use your phone? 
it doesn't matter where I am in the world. If I go into a cafe to have a coffee, there are always people with young children in prams or just sort of wandering around the cafe because they're on their phone and they're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. I find it incredibly easy to make eye contact with babies and children because if they, if they see you looking at them, they like, they, they latch onto that. Yeah. They love that, you know, yeah. and I think, uh, recently, I was floating down a river on a on a, a tube, yep. uh, sort of a family outing in America, and I floated past a young girl who was sitting on a tube with her mother, who had her phone in a plastic bag, and was using it. And this child actually must have been about ten, turned to her mother and said, "Mom, will you put your phone down?" And yeah. I thought, "Yeah, exactly." Yeah. You know, and and I think it it's so important if you want your children to to disengage from social media and you're worried about that they're too involved what are you modeling you know and and the other part of your what you said there i think is important you know it's 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 modeling emotions as well so if you've had a tough day you come home and you talk about your day you know within reason and say gosh i've had a tough day i think i'm going to go and have a bath mm -hmm. or i think i'm going to go for a walk around the block do you want to come and we'll have a chat you know so that you talk about how you you show them how you manage challenge and 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 if you come home and you have had a tough day and you have a cry you say gosh it was that hard i i'm gonna you know i'm, I'm really upset mm -hmm. but i feel better now that i've had a cry so you model these ways of coping with challenge in life and you you show them that you also have struggles but that you can think it through or that you'll pick up the phone and speak to a friend or that you speak to your partner Mm. Yeah, you've, it, that modelling is critical. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think that's something that a lot of parents don't realise. And as mm. we speak, I can hear my wife listening to this going, "So I told you, you so I'm probably not going to be able to use my cell phone ever again." So <laughs> no, I mean, no. no, but that's fine because it is part of our yeah. life. I mean, I yeah. use mine all the time, but yeah. it, I just about three weeks ago, I made a decision to take it out of my bedroom, and not have it next to my bed, and you know, sort of um, put it onto charge in another room and. I, I went to bed the first night. I thought, I'm not going to go to sleep. I'm so used to checking things. And yeah. I fell asleep straight away. And uh, to be honest, I've had the best three weeks of sleep since I got a mobile phone. Um, so, And that is another recommendation, if I can just put this. Yeah, no, you can. Don't take social media or let your children take social media into their bedrooms, like televisions, iPads, laptops, mobile phones. There's so much evidence now that shows that it disturbs their sleep. Mm. Yes, I've just, here we go, just to prove to you that I work in sort of higher circles, just finished reading Dr. Panda's book on circadian codes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he speaks about exactly the same thing, yeah. not only the blue light, but yeah, also the, light. the fact that your cognitive um, sort of thinking is still going yeah. on the head. So, yeah, so you're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Have we gone off piece yet? No, 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 we've not definitely gone off piece. That's all good. Um the difference, because I know that you've been in the UK now for six years. Six years, yeah. The difference between a current UK kid and what you saw in New Zealand when you were here, what do you think are the biggest three differences between those two children? You know, my my daughter and Kiwi son-in-law um, moved back here from after 10 years in London um, about two years ago. And I think they had their first child there, um, and the second one has been born here in New Zealand. Um, and I just think for them and for me as well, it's seeing children going down into the underground and catching the underground. Um, you know, London is, as everybody knows, an incredibly busy city. Public transport in the morning is packed. Sometimes I leave at six o'clock. 
but I'm still packed like a sardine. Yeah. And I just think it for them and for me as well that it's the outdoor living. I see my granddaughter here, the three and a half year old, in her bare feet off to nursery. Yeah. It's just, it's not that that doesn't happen in the UK. I mean, they've got beautiful parks, uh, you know, like New Zealand, a lot of open spaces. I just think, you know, it's the outdoor living here for me. Um, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, once you get out of London, um, you get a lot of that outdoor living as well. I think they're very common, common challenges, Brian. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a mental health uh, challenges uh, globally, I think. Um, I, it's difficult to say really. I just know I pref- I'm happy my, that two of my grandchildren are growing up in New Zealand, um, rather than in the UK. The UK, you know, there are a lot of challenges at the moment. People yeah. worrying about where we're going with Brexit. Um, crime is on the rise in London. Um, and also that constant threat of terrorism coming yeah, from. Yeah, I yeah. tell you, that is, whenever I'm, on the underground, and I love London, but I'm, you know, just those couple of terrorist situa, you know, terrible situations mm-hmm. we've had. It does make you anxious, or mm-hmm. makes let me own this. It makes me anxious. Um, it's another reason why I go either very early or very late, leave leave work late. So, yeah, it's got its challenges, and I don't. I just think it's. New Zealand's got its challenges too. Yep. I don't think I could actually say three things. Okay. Just That's that right. I'm happy my grandchildren are growing up here. That's beautiful. Right. So just to prove to you, I've researched my stuff here. Here we go. So how do you talk to the kids of today about their mental health, given the fact that, uh, and I quote, half the mental health problems suffered by adults mm. are established by the age of 14 years. So lots of, and it's something we spoke about before we started recording, but you get lots of kids saying flippant things or they will talk about things that are quite clearly years ab- mm. beyond their cognitive thinking. Mm. How do you talk to them about what's going on in their world? Yeah, I think you're right. Children, when I was growing up, I think the first time I heard the word suicide was when I was probably about 17. Mm. Um, but children today, they know that and what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, in fact, I remember supporting a child here when I was still working in schools, um, uh, who was about seven and who talked about the world being too loud and it was just all too much. Um, I, how do we talk to them about it? There's a lot more awareness about mental health, um, and the importance of talking to children. And I think that it's certainly in the UK, there's a move to talk to them about and include that in the curriculum, you know, their emotions, um, you know, how they can cope with them and how their, their feelings are connected to their behavior and to their thoughts, um, and to help them try and capture their thoughts and control them. I think, you know, I think importantly, it's two things really. It's about talking to them about mental health and, and explain to them what that is helping them manage it but most importantly making sure that every child has got somebody they can turn to and because challenges for children are often connected to their family Mm -hmm. it's ensuring that they can actually identify somebody outside their family i mean ideally we want them to talk to somebody in their family a parent a grandparent an aunt an uncle but also that we would hope that there'd be somebody within each school that they felt connected to and that they trusted that they could talk to so you know, I think we, we, we do a lot of that, making sure that children know that they, there's somebody they can talk to if they're struggling. But most importantly, it's that the, 
the significant adults around them, teachers, neighbors, family members, are watching out for any changes in their mental health. Which brings me on to the next point, because you get lots of people saying the loss of the sort of nuclear family cell, and we've sort of, mm. as a society, we've gone towards more of a blended family, I guess. Um, we've got stepbrothers and stepsisters and stepdads yeah. and stepmums and everything else. Do you think that's got something to do with the rise of uh, mental health issues for kids, or do you just literally think it's one of those things of, as society's evolved and we've become more adaptive um, and we're in better connection with one another via social media and the such like, that that's the reason why um, juvenile mental health is in the state it's in? Well, I wouldn't like to make a, a sort of sweeping statement about it because I there are many families who stay together mm-hmm. where it's very dysfunctional, mm-hmm. and there are many families that separate where they do it very functionally or devolves into you know, a very sort of well-managed situation. Um, so it's very much depends on how adults handle it, uh, yeah. and it's that. I mean, that's another whole area. But you know, if adults are separating, they need. And I think New Zealand's always been pretty good about um, making available, uh, you know, support for parents. I don't know if that's still around. I presume it is. You know, mm-hmm. that if they're separating, they're not managing it. That there are the courses and things they can go to to help them do that. Um, but I think it is really that parents remain focused on the children if they are separating or if they're staying together, that they're aware that if they are, there is dysfunction, that there can be impact on the children. But on that whole thing of, uh, you know, the connectedness, that, that does concern me that often young people think that if they've got 500 people on their Instagram account, that they are very well connected. Mm. I mean, I've dealt with young people who say, talk about their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their partner who sometimes they haven't actually met. Mm. You know, they've got mm-hmm. a relationship over social media. Um, not, we can't necessarily change that. That is perhaps again part of where we are, but we can, talk to young people and children, help them understand about relationship and the importance of, you know, that actually what connection is and and helping them um, understand different kinds of relationships. Mm, Because on the flip side of that, I know that there's been some people around the world and it's been documented now because we're now sort of in that first sort of solid generation of social media where Mm. a child at the age of sort of... 14, 15, 16, 17 has been a YouTube star and an internet sensation and everything else. But once they hit their early 20s and they all of a sudden become untrendy or uncool for want of a better word, their likes diminish and they have actually suffered mental health problems because Huge. of it, because of the fact that they're all of a sudden not popular anymore or they feel that they're unwanted. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, we are, we are so playing catch up with this impact mm. of social media, I feel, yeah. because it evolves so quickly. Um, and that's a really good example. And, and again, I think that that's why early childhood and, and childhood, middle childhood is so important in helping children develop that sort of sense of who I am and I'm not just all the likes on my. So when they get to that stage or when they start to get involved in Instagram and they will, you know, that they, they can keep a balance of it. If I've got 500 likes, that doesn't necessarily define who I am. No. I feel confident in who I am. I can step away from it. I've got this group of friends who are important. Because, I mean, as adults we know, I mean, I can, at my age, count on my two hands the number of friends I've had sort of for a very long time who will always be my friends. Mm-hmm. Constantly meeting new people who will then join that group. But, yep. you know, it's, I don't need 500 people. No. I just need a group. 
who I can turn to if I'm, you know, in strife or who can turn to me if they, they need support and, you know. Exactly. It's, and let's be honest, who's got that many dinner plates? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and who's got the time? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So um, when you did your PhD study, you were, um, for a wee while there, you were on New Zealand television and radio talking because the, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the sort of the key sort of uh, message in your thesis was, the key fears of New Zealand children yeah. and how they dealt with them. Yeah. Um, and one of the, and looking back over it, and I've read it a couple of times now. Oh, wow. so there we go. I'm, That's yeah, good. Right, I've even got an e-copy of it. Anyway, <laughs> so most kids abroad uh, have, a, have a broad range of coping strategies they utilise when it comes to their fears. And here's the lovely bit for me, especially their mums. I thought that was really cool. Their mums, yeah. yeah. So when you did your PhD on those key fears of New Zealand kids, what were the two or three that made you, as a parent and also as a prospective sort of PhD, stand up and go, "Wow, I didn't expect that at all." Well, I, I can't. I, I always thought they'd have a lot of coping strategies, so that was one thing. There were so many more um, unconscious coping strategies. Children who talked about going outside and dancing or climbing trees, and mm-hmm. of course, I should have known that they'd do those sort of active behavioural. This is too hard. I'm going to go outside and play kind of approaches. Um, you know, children who talked about getting in their cupboard and thinking, going somewhere under their bed, being quiet somewhere. I guess, um, it was, it was fairly early days because I started, um, I think I started this in sort of the mid earlier 2000s and social media was, you know, emerging. Mm. I mean, it's grown so much in that time, but already then there were children saying, I wish my mom or my dad or whoever significant adult would put their phone down and mm-hmm. listen to me when I'm talking. And we had these discussions about, well, how do you know, how do you know if your, if your parent hasn't been listening? And they say, well, because I'll say something and then I can tell by what they say in answer that they haven't been listening or they're not looking at me. That looking at me, and I realize that there are different uh, approaches to that in different cultures, is was something that was really important. So, And that's going back to what I said about going into cafes when people are on their phones or restaurants or anywhere and they're not looking at their children mm-hmm. when they're talking. That is so important. I find... If my, my three-year-old granddaughter is going, Granny, 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 and I put down what I'm doing and I look at her, then she, yeah. she sort of blossoms, yeah. you know, that she's got my attention. I'd say that. And then the other thing at that stage was the awareness of children about separation and divorce was a big thing for me. Like there was those who were already in, that I talked to already were in separated or divorced uh, families and there were those who were in families that were in conflict and, and that awareness of, oh my gosh, if my family are in conflict, does it mean they're going to get divorced? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think because of children's awareness of divorce uh, these days, you know, that if there's conflict in the family, they were immediately concerned, does this mean they're going to separate it? Mm. Uh, and, I th- and I remember, often when I talk to parents, I say, arguing in front of your children is actually important. It's just the way you do it. If you are arguing in a way that you're listening to your partner and there's a bit of negotiation going on and there's give and take and there's, okay, I get your point kind of thing, you're teaching them incredibly important life skills. So don't hide arguing from them, but do it in a way that is constructive. Yep. They learn skills. You're smiling. Are I'm, you, I'm, are you? I'm thinking about what my wife would say. She'd say, it's okay to agree to disagree. Yeah. 
And I'm like, yeah, okay, then, yeah. It took me a long while to learn that as well. Oh, no, absolutely, because then your child, like personally, I grew up in a family where my parents thought it was best if they argued behind closed doors. So yeah. I grew up not being good at arguing and always on the lookout for any sort of conflict in the environment. Yeah. It took me years to learn how to argue. For me, when I, re- I know, when I reread your um, PhD, um, the, the thesis, the one that always stands out to me was, and I felt it as a little kid as well. I remember running into my, to my mum. I think I must have been about eight. Absolutely heartbroken because I realised that they, my mum and dad, were going to die. I was going to yeah, die. Yeah. Um, in fact, everybody I knew and loved was going to die as well. So, if you have had something like that recently happen and you are a parent, where's sort of the best place to start? Because, I mean, a lot, I mean, I know that there's lots of adults, I know from my role as a police officer, who constantly sort of push the death sort of aspect of our life, mm. and it is an aspect of our life, uh, in the closets, and it only comes out when it needs to, and then it goes back in again, because mm. that's not what we want to talk mm. about. So where's the best place to kind of not start that discussion but if it does happen where's the best place to go so that we can explain to kids hey look that's just part of the journey or yeah year. you know there's there's so many good organizations and you that i'd forgotten about that but you're absolutely right i remember you know because there's a sort of scheme of things isn't there children their first experience of death if they haven't had any extraordinary experiences is usually a pet mm-hmm. or, or and then it's a grandparent but you know out of when things happen out of the order and even when it's like a, a pet or grandparent, it suddenly makes them aware that, you know, that my parent is going to die. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, illness and uh, crime and all that sort of thing. There's such good organizations. Like I've done work with the Grief Center here mm-hmm. in, in the UK, uh, in New Zealand. And in fact, they, they've got some really good booklets that I was involved in writing specifically about that. So you could go... You could look for um, resources, and certainly the Grief Centre, I think they've got PDFs of these booklets talking they to have. your, talking to your child morning. about death, yeah, did you? Have, yes, yeah. yes. So, so those we wrote, I wrote quite a few years ago. But also international organisations like which who I've worked with in the UK, Child Bereavement UK, Winston's Wish is quite a globally well-known one, and they've got uh, very good resources online as well. But I would encourage uh, parents, because often if there's a death that is within the family it affects the adults in the family and in their ability to be present mm-hmm. as parents and and they also need time to um sort of find support and start to grieve and you know it's such a personal journey you don't know how long it's going to take or no. how it's going to unfold so i would ensure that you've got support from other adults um who can support your children and and if it looks like they would benefit from speaking to a professional you know, go online to NZAC or any of these sort of professional bodies and search for a, a, a therapist. And sometimes there's some in schools, especially mm-hmm. in secondary schools in New Zealand. Um, children, young people sometimes don't want to get help in schools, but sometimes they're quite happy to. But you could always speak to a therapist in a school and ask them for a referral. Mm. So, I mean, it's a mixture of your own support, getting support yourself as an adult, seeking professional support and looking for resources and which, just time really which kind of means you've half answered the question I'm about to next give you and stop me if this sounds familiar but addressing issues as early as possible and helping children think about how to cope with difficult situations can help prevent problems from spiraling and becoming more complex later in life mm. so does that sound familiar that's something you said is it yep. <laughs> there we go, <laughs> let's right. go back and read there one. we go right so <laughs> so if your child presents with some issues um then what's the first couple of steps as a parent or a caregiver 
that you would recommend taking. So let's say, for instance, let's let's throw it out there and say, my child has just come towards me and said, Dad, it's horrible. When I go into the class, I feel like the walls are closing in. I'm losing my breath and I feel really anxious. Where do we go from there? Well, firstly, I would say just listen to your child. Sit down, get down to their level, you know, sit on the couch together and, and invite them to talk a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, empathy is a huge aspect. You know, people, even, ch- not even, but children as well, feeling listened to, that, that you, you care about what's happening to them. And the fact that they've spoken to you is a really positive sign. Um, you know, trying to work out strategies, you know, if it's something like feel the walls are closing in, helping them to think about their breathing. Um, asking them and, and sort of getting a sense of do you think this is escalating or starting to look like it might be a mental health issue in which case you know if you don't know which way to turn often speaking to your doctor mm-hmm. um, I know that's what they advise in the UK and they can then triage them out to other services um, this is, uh, so your doctor might be able to advise who you might speak to um, psychologist or you know just depending on on, on where, how you feel this problem is unfolding. Talking to the teacher can be helpful. Um, with older, say with adolescents and maybe even middle childhood, you could check with a child that's what they want you mm-hmm. to do. With a younger child, I would talk to the yeah. teacher anyway, get them involved in it. Um, sometimes adolescents don't really want you to talk to a teacher, but you could perhaps explain how that could be helpful. Um, so I think a combination of making sure you take it seriously and that you can take the time to talk to them and listen to them and revisit it every now and then. How's that going? How, how can we sort this out together? Um, and if, if you don't feel it's something that you can sort out, then to get professional help, get the teachers involved. Often there's an underlying issue, you know, mm-hmm. if they have that sort of, they're having a sort of, um, uh, how can I say, physical response yeah. to something. You know, their breathing's affected, things are closing in, they feel faint. That's often some sort of anxiety underneath. And so trying to work out, this is where that whole mentalization that I was talking to you about earlier yeah. comes in. So there's this sort of focus on mentalization. There's a really good program in the UK uh, which helps parents mentalize so you have to try and work out for your children you know when a baby cries are they wet is the nappy pin which doesn't exist anymore sticking exactly, into yeah, them yeah. um you know are they hungry are yep. they tired are they cold there's sort of five or six things you go through and that's mentalization trying to work out or why are they crying you know what so it's the same with with you know the child who says i can't breathe or i'm too anxious to go to school you have to try and work out for yourself, think through what's going on, what's happening in our family, what's going on in the environment. It could, if they're a child who thinks sort of existentially, are they concerned about what's going on in the world? Are they too exposed to news? You know, that sort of thing. You have to try and work it out as an adult yourself, as well as talking to them. Mm-hmm. I'm staggered at the age of 27. You know what nappy pins are as well, Dr. Fee. Well done. Um, <laughs> right, there we go. Right, so. Listen, I've been talking about grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> I tried for you. Right, so here we go. So um, putting on your glasses and looking towards the future. Yeah. In the next 10 years, what do you think are going to be the biggest issues in children's mental health? And what do we do now to start addressing them? That's what keeps you and I in this work. Exactly, yeah. Um, You're not wrong there either. Well, the World Health Organization stated quite some time ago, in fact, I'm pretty sure they were saying it 
in when I was doing writing up my thesis that depression will be the biggest disease burden by 2020. I think they that 2020 was brought forward. I think it almost already is the biggest disease burden. The impact, you know, economically on countries, just socially, of depression. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do? I think a lot of the things you and I have been talking about, start as early as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, be present for your children and young people. I'm not saying at all that it is all down to parenting, but a big chunk of it is yeah. parenting. Yeah. And and I think that's difficult for parents. I've been a parent. I've been a single parent. I've been a married parent. I've been a partnered parent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 not easy. And and I know now that life is you know is it goes along at a very fine, very fast pace. I think you know the 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 how you how you your home environment is really important. It it needs to be a place of where children can come at the end of the day. The parents can come at the end of the day. The adults, you know, and and relax and talk to each other and. Just wind down. Um, yeah, I do think depression, mental health is, uh, is, is already one of our biggest challenges. Mm. And I see in the UK, and I think it's probably similar here, the government, the governments need to put more money into services and support. Whereas I think you and I, while that's very really important, we like, what can we do back here mm. so that we prevent those problems? Mm. And, and while I think the services are critical, we're never going to have enough services. I think they realize that in yep. the UK. Um, and so obviously we, we're looking at things like more digital work and online platform work, which is developing very fast in the UK and is developing here as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I constantly do think, what can we do? And I think awareness amongst children and young people about their mental health and teaching them how to manage it and how to ask for help. Um, I think making sure that we tr have as many services available as we can. I'm more for the preventative side, mm -hmm. but of course we have to have the, the reactive side as well. So more services, but we know that we're not ever going to have enough. So more, more innovative thinking digitally about what we can offer people right in their homes. The NHS is looking at how they manage patients mm -hmm. online where yep. they can have consultations with nurses online they're doing far more of that because they just can't cope on the face-to-face -face. um so i'm a bit all over the place on this but i do go back to i'd encourage people to have a look at you know uh, harvard university's center for the developing child because they've got really good advice there for parents and adults who are in the care of who caring for children about how to develop resilience and grit and aware and lately they've been talking about adverse childhood experiences or aces as they which is a very big topic at the moment mm -hmm. so i would encourage people to have a look at that um, website um, and i think just always have somebody to talk to both children and young people and adults if you have concerns and and not to shy away from seeking professional help um i think i think the most important thing is that we keep talking we keep talking about um things like self-harm suicide ideation suicide depression anxiety mental health and how we build resilience and grit and how we manage social media there's no one size, I can't give no, you an answer. No, there isn't. No, you're right, exactly right. And for, like you say, for every family and every person, it's always going to be different. But it's really important that we all have those conversations because if we don't, that's where the issues will happen. Yeah, keep talking. So, yeah. So speaking of issues, here's one that 
my father and I just sat there in bewilderment when we heard it and I said I know somebody who might be able to help, help us out with this so please explain to us <laughs> what and we were just sitting there going uh, okay is this a buzzword that a psychologist has picked up on or is it uh, and quite clearly it is a condition but we were just kind of staggered and I know that there's lots of the old school listeners to this podcast who will go well I think I might have had that when I was a child as well um, and I'm not taking the the mickey or making light of it in any way but oppositional defiance Dis- disorder disorder right yeah. uh, I mean if I'm sitting here and I go well that kind of explains some of my childhood and just about all of my sports playing career yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and some people say well probably what you need is just a little bit of an attitude adjustment then I'm like yeah no it's not quite that way so it's become a big thing in New Zealand what not I'm not going to ask you what you think about it but what are some of the issues with oppositional defiance disorder because like we've said before before we started recording if a child screams there's a reason for that they're not doing it just to be naughty um if a child throws I don't know let's say for instance something down the toilet and we all know toddlers have done that they're doing that for a reason that might be because it's fun and they like the splashing mm. sound but there is a reason behind it with oppositional defiance disorder though there just seems to be this uh, some people look at it as a buzzword and other people just go the old schoolers just go well that's just not that's, that's just, just being disobedient yeah it's just bad yeah. behavior yeah yeah Thoughts? Yeah, yeah. It's into there's a there's a one beyond that called callous unemotional. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you might want to look at that. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, oppositional defiant disorder. I worked with a um, very wise woman here in New Zealand called Lyle Christie, who used to say to me, "There's no naughty is an adult constructive word uh, to describe behaviour that they don't understand." Uh, and certainly, you know, we were talking earlier about babies who cry. You have mm-hmm. to try and work it out. They're not crying because they're naughty. They're crying for a reason. Mm-hmm. You have to work it out. And, you know, we there's always underlying reasons why people behave in a certain way. And for children, they're usually trying to tell you something. So if they're out there, you know, and they, you know, getting involved in petty crime already, it's not that they're thinking, I'm going to get involved in this petty crime to tell you something. They are involved in petty crime. The fact that they're involved in petty crime tells you something about what's going on in their mm-hmm. life or what has gone on in their childhood. Um, and it explains why they behave. And I guess oppositional defiant disorder, um, I think it's the, you know, it's the, um, in, de- de- defined in the, um, DSM-5 now. A diagnostic statistical manual which describes and defines and sets the criteria for um, behaviors that have been you know defined as such mm-hmm. so I think as we have so much problem so many problems we have this oppositional defined disorder um, and yes you could say it's just bad behavior but you know it, it affects so many aspects of, of of children and young people's lives that they've actually defined it now um, and they try and I guess in a way their arguments for and against it those that in a way for parents if they get a um, diagnosis of that it, it's easier for them to get support and help so if you say my child has been um, has has a uh, has, has oppositional defiant disorder, I can now get some help because people can go to the DSM-5 and say, these are the criteria, these are the types of behavior over this period of time. Um, and, you know, we can therefore give this child help. 
and and that can be very um, it can be a relief for parents mm. you know who are struggling and not getting any support the same with I guess parents getting a, def- a, a diagnosis of autism mm-hmm. once yep. they've got that there is a description for it and they can get support yep. Um, yeah, fully but, understand that. Yeah, yeah. But, and I guess, I don't know, you could get into a whole big argument about is this because people parent in a different way, that we have so many children and young people who are, you know, have a, a dis- description of ODD. I don't know. It's a very big conversation. And like we said, it's okay to agree to disagree as well. So exactly. That's, yeah, so that's, I guess as an, any adult, you're, perhaps your thinking could be, what can I do to help? Yep, I guess. Yep. Okay, right. So now... Last question, and we always do this with all of our guests, and I know that you've listened to one episode, so um, the day of uh, Dr. Fiona Piwa's eulogy has come up. What would you like people to say about Dr. Fiona on that day? That's And, that, and that's a good question, because, um, yeah, I lost my mother last year, and she was 91, and I guess... Um, and she put in her will that she wanted to be shot into in a firework into the um, up into the. And did you do that? We did it. So about three months ago, we all went back to Cape Town, and my brother um, and was out in the felt, um, which is like the bush, and he put up a platform and he had set it up. He, we had to get. It took us a year to get permission because mm-hmm. there's been a mm-hmm. drought in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had to have fire trucks and, and we had champagne and we had, um, my sister played the saxophone, played all my mother's favorite music. What a wonderful world. And at the point when it got sort of sundown, uh, it was perfect weather. Um, my brother made the speech about, you know, how she traveled and how she'd had a wonderful life and she'd really attacked it. And, and then we shot this incredible. <laughs> massive firework into it was just incredible and I remember afterwards saying to my daughter and I've actually said it to my son and daughter a number of times if I get run over by a bus tomorrow I want you to know that I have loved my life I've had incredible tragedies in my life and I've had incredible joys and moments of absolute love and ecstasy and mm-hmm. um, and I guess that's what I'd like them to say is she really loved her life. Mm. Oh, that's uh, listening to your um, mum's story. It's it's not morbid. I actually find it kind of mildly amusing. Oh, some people have found it morbid, but oh, no. <laughs> that was her. No, that, I don't know. I love it as a wish. There's also lots of servicemen have done that. Uh, particularly, there's I know some people in America have done it, and it's actually been in a couple of movies where yeah. they have asked for their ashes to be fired out of a cannon, yeah. or that type of thing. Same yeah. thing. They have asked for permission and everything else, and they fired the person's ashes out of the cannon or in a firework or something. But unfortunately, the wind direction has been bad on the day, and it's all actually. Just blowing back on them, so <laughs> I know, kind of funny. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we so. actually said um, as as the rocket went up, and it was one of those ones that splayed out sort of three hundred meters or whatever. We all laughed because there are six of us. We all laughed and said, um, "She always, she just wanted to rain down on us, you know." That, that we reckon yeah. that was probably oh, yeah, part yeah, of yeah. it. I'm having the last word. I don't care what <laughs> yeah, you say. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. All right. Yeah. And now, with that in mind, I know that you have just started a new role. So, do you know what the social media tags for your new role are at the Mental Health Innovations, or, or do we just get people to search for Mental Health Innovations? Well, mental health innovations is is like is really new. It's a startup. We started up uh, from funding from the Royal Foundation, uh, which is the Royal Foundation of the 
uh, two young royal princes and their partners. Um, and yeah, the first thing we've bought on, so it's an organization that is looking at developing innovative, innovative digital mental health. Um, developments mm -hmm. and for that we need data obviously there's a lot of data already but we've bought the American crisis text line into the UK um, and yeah they um, it's, it's all very new I would look under finding out about uh, crisis text line in the UK is under shout so it's www.giveusashout.org um, and mental health innovations I'm not sure that we have a website yet um, but if you looked up Mental Health Innovations in the Royal Foundation, you'd get the background to all of that. Right. Now I'm going to give you a challenge as one police officer to an academic. Yes. Right. So uh, not too you, difficult. Okay. No, no, it's not too difficult. So you and I spoke before about some of the the interesting books or the interesting things that we read or see or hear about from different people. And lots of those people don't uh, either get credit or they don't actually see, they don't actually see some of their amazing work being done. So... I'm going to throw it out to you for a year, you and I, because I know that you've got a Twitter account. I know that you don't use it. I as don't. Well. No, right. I mean, I but just I have to limit social media. This is what this is what I thought we could do. Every book that we read or everything that we see of interest, we'll tag one another in on that Twitter, okay, on that feed. Let's do that so that people can actually see. Hey, that's quite interesting. So make sure that you follow go and fo follow Dr. Fiona Penway on Twitter. You can. I'll put her Twitter link in so that you can encourage her to do this for us. Please note that I don't. No, no, <laughs> I no, will no, start no, using no, it. Right. Yeah. So you're going to have to now. Um, and we'll see what we can bring out uh, out of the woodwork um, that might help some parents, might help some caregivers, might help some academics. Heck, might even help some police officers. And that's what we're all after. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll put the book that I couldn't remember. Okay. Great. <laughs> that's right. Brilliant. And I'll do likewise. So that's all yeah. good. So I'll tag you in on that. So, Dr. Fiona Penwa, thank you very much for being our guest on the Cappuccino. I won't get you to say it was better than being on the BBC because they may never ever get you back on again, so that's all right. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, enjoy your stay when you're in New Zealand, and I hope that you enjoy the British winter when you go back. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Brian, yeah. except for the comment about the British winter. You're really welcome. I'll be back here at the end of the year. Go on. Lovely. Take care. Thanks, Brian. Oh, I wonder. But you are...